the unfortunate truth for international religious freedom is that most countries that have an official or favored religion also maintain some sort of legal framework that in theory and most often in practice marginalizes or discriminates those who either do not share in that religion or do not share in that government's particular interpretation. Hello, and welcome to the USERV Spotlight Podcast, a podcast series by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each episode, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Hi, and welcome to USURF Spotlight. I'm Jamie Staley, a supervisory policy advisor at the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. As followers of USURF's work, we'll know much of our research examines urgent religious freedom conditions in specific countries and regions. However, some of our most important and innovative publications and events focus on issues and themes that have significant bearing on global trends related to freedom of religion or belief. Today, we're discussing one such global trend examined in a recent USURF report, a global overview of official and favored religions and global implications for religious freedom. Governments around the world use many different strategies to control or repress religion, but a common tactic is for the state to elevate particular religion to a special status in order to marginalize faiths or belief systems that are different. USERF's investigation of this issue looks at governments that identify an official or favored religion and then enforce that religion through the law. It includes statistical analysis of countries with official or favored religions and identifies some of the key trends that are evident across those places. It's not difficult to understand why it's useful and important to consider international religious freedom through this lens of official religions and law, as some of the most significant and emerging human rights challenges in our world today show. In Iran, protesters have for over three months now bravely stood against the brutality of a regime that has for 43 years enforced an idiosyncratic and repressive version of Islamic law onto its populace. The regime's particular interpretation of Shia Islam has included using restrictive and often violent means to limit the essential human rights and religious freedom of Iranian women, not to mention Baha'is, Christians, and other marginalized groups. And in Burma, which favors Buddhism, successive governments have maintained a deeply unjust 1982 law that specifically excluded the Muslim-majority Rohingya community from citizenship, leaving them effectively stateless and deeply vulnerable. The country's powerful military took this legal exclusion to its brutal extreme in 2017 by targeting the Rohingya people in a devastating campaign that the United States recognized earlier this year as genocide and crimes against humanity. To be clear, few of the countries this report covers reach the extremes of the above examples. In fact, some maintain relevant laws but do not enforce them, and others have an official religion but no legal framework through which to enforce it onto the populace. The report and our discussion today will consider this broad range of examples, as well as some notable exclusions. 
To dig a bit deeper into this topic, we have with us today Supervisory Policy Analyst Kurt Worthmuller, who led the research and writing of this report. Kurt, welcome. Thanks so much, Jamie. It's a real pleasure to be on here today. So before we dive into the content of this report, let's start with some background. Kurt, what led you and the USURF team to evaluate how governments create and use state and favored religions to their own benefit? And what exactly do you mean when you refer to an official or a favored religion? That's a great place to begin, Jamie. Uh, we've been mulling over for quite some time the question of what sort of impact a country's official or favored religion generally has on its religious freedom framework. We've often pointed out in our reporting when countries have named a religion or religions as such, but that's been limited, of course, to countries we already report on, and therefore those places in which violations are severe or particularly severe. The question remains, though, what about the rest of the world? Well, the key connection to launch into this research, which I should acknowledge you also contributed to, uh, and I greatly appreciate that, was language in our mandate specifically raising the issue. And here I'll quote from the original language of the mandate, laws and policies of foreign governments that permit or condone discrimination against or violations of human rights of minority groups and other vulnerable communities on the basis of religion. It's a bit of a, of, of a political mouthful there, but the intent is clear. From there, it seemed a fairly natural hook or question to ask how much laws and policies might emerge out of contexts that involve official and favored religions. So as to the question of what we mean by official or favored religion, well, this is an important distinction, and I'm glad you asked about it. We do not mean a country in which a majority of the population belongs to a particular religion, or a country in which the government, on a de facto basis, gives preferential treatment or attention to a particular religion or religious community. Instead, we're talking about countries that explicitly name a religion in their founding or essential documents, generally a constitution, as the official religion of the state or country, or which explicitly name a religious tradition as uniquely important or central to the country's identity. It's a crucial distinction for the study because it excludes quite a few countries currently among those that USURF recommends for countries of particular concern or CPC status. For example, India is officially a secular state, but in practice, it has been adopting laws in recent years that further the current government's Hindu nationalist agenda, marginalizing Muslim, Christian, and other religious minorities in the process. And China, of course, is officially atheist, but it has established a deeply repressive legal framework against essentially all religious communities, including Uyghur Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, Catholic and Protestant Christians, and, and others. But that distinction also means that the report includes a few places which have official religions, but don't normally show up in USERP reporting for obvious reasons, such as the United Kingdom, which has an established Church of England, of course, but also, and this is a crucial distinction, it maintains a robust legal protection for freedom of religion or belief that allows it to join the United States in standing firmly for religious freedom. 
So it's important that we reiterate here, Jamie, that this report is doing something quite different from USERF's usual reporting on the worst violators against religious freedom around the world. It is not trying to replace or diminish that vital reporting. And Kurt, I mean, as you jumped into this research and we're doing this and, uh, you know, analyzing and pulling data and trends from multiple different sources. So what were some of your key findings in that? Uh, was there anything that was especially surprising to you? Yes. Well, let me take the second part of your question first, Jamie, as, as I did find some of the data surprising and particularly interesting. Although the international standards make it clear that countries can have an official or favored religion and still protect religious freedom, there's no inevitable connection, in other words. I frankly expected nearly all countries with an official or favored religion to also maintain accordingly some sort of discriminatory or marginalizing legal framework. And yes, while the majority did perhaps fall into this category, there were actually quite a few countries, 21 out of 78 to be precise, that had an official or favored religion that did not translate into government laws or policies. And frankly, I found this encouraging. And in other words, if I may paraphrase the former United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, Ahmed Shahid, governments can recognize the symbolic importance of religious tradition without entangling themselves with its institutions. However, the unfortunate truth for international religious freedom is that most countries that have an official or favored religion also maintain some sort of legal framework that in theory and most often in practice marginalizes or discriminates those who either do not share in that religion or do not share in that government's particular interpretation. This strong correlation and, you know, it's again, it's not an inevitable correlation. Uh, it was our first key finding. Second, the report also found that blasphemy laws continue to represent one of the most pervasive and corrosive forms of government laws and policies based on religion. User, of course, has reported on blasphemy laws extensively, and we expect to continue to do so for the foreseeable future. You know, any of our listeners, of course, would be familiar with our work on this topic and, you know, visit to our website. We'll find lots of um, reporting throughout individual countries and also standalone reports and, and events that we've, we've done on the topic. Well, third, we found that government laws and policies based on religion often leave their most repressive impact on groups and communities that are already politically and socially vulnerable. I'll come back to that again in a little bit. Finally, we found that many countries with an official or favored religion and laws or policies based on that religion also generally have significant overlap between violations of religious freedom and violations of other essential rights and freedoms. It's all interconnected, in other words. In, in a sense, this finding does not come as any sort of real surprise, because of course we at USERF have reiterated this point throughout our reporting for, for many years. But instead, we find that the data reinforces our understanding of this issue, and it provides us with another framework, another way of looking um, to both assess and address this 
significant area of, of overlap. Yeah, that's all really helpful for giving us a better understanding of how governments use religion to commit religious freedom violations. So how does that actually translate into legal frameworks that violate religious freedom? And can you give us a few country-specific examples? Absolutely, Jamie. I mean, you know, these examples, of course, are really where the rubber hits the road. And so I think it's really important for us to think about this in specific terms. Um, in terms of the first key finding, it, it essentially stands on its own. So perhaps I'll just note one quick but illustrative context. Uh, in Greece, which identifies Greek Orthodox Christianity as its official religion, a 1938 law, and yes, I did say 1938 law, because it's still in effect today in 2023, it prevents anyone but members of the Greek Orthodox clergy from publicly sharing their faith for the purposes of conversion, proselytism, in other words. And this law certainly stands as a serious impediment to Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which includes the right for individuals to change and to privately or publicly express their religion or belief. As to the second finding on blasphemy laws, most European governments have come to embrace, uh, embrace robust freedom of religion or belief protections, but we still see some blasphemy laws and even active cases appear from time to time. In Poland, for example, which favors Christianity, we noted in our 2022 annual report that there had been two blasphemy prosecutions as recently as 2021, one against a group of LGBTQI plus activists who had faced charges for, quote, offending religious feelings by displaying posters depicting the Virgin Mary with a rainbow halo. And another case in which a heavy metal singer was initially convicted on similar charges for having posted a photo on social media of his foot stepping on an image of the Virgin Mary. Now, the former case ended with a not guilty verdict and a court overturned the conviction in the latter case, but the fact remains that those cases were actively prosecuted. The first of these two cases in Poland connect uh, usefully to the next key finding, which is the disproportionate impact of laws and policies on already vulnerable groups. They include religious and ethnic minorities, which in many parts of the world are one and the same, such as Assyrian Christians in Iraq and predominantly Muslim Rohingya in Burma, but also women and members of the LGBTQ plus community. Under this topic, we sadly have plenty of egregious and very current examples to choose from, including, as you mentioned up front, Jamie, uh, Iran's decades-long legal repression of women that's boiled over into months of anti-regime protests. And in Afghanistan, the Taliban's idiosyncratic and frankly misogynistic interpretation of Hanafi jurisprudence that singles out women for marginalization while also carrying out public executions and violently targeting the country's Hazara Shia Muslim minority. Uh, in fact, just, just weeks ago, the Taliban officially banned women from all universities, depriving them of something as basic as education based on their interpretation of religious law. I, I should add though that these sorts of discriminatory laws against vulnerable groups 
also appear in ways that are far less extreme and perhaps a bit more subtle than the ones I just mentioned. In Andorra, for example, whose constitution, and I'm quoting here from the constitution, acknowledges a special relationship with the Catholic Church, the government affords legal status and significant privileges to the church while failing to provide similar legal standing for the country's Muslim and Jewish communities, or even granting their request for a multi-confessional cemetery. So as to our last key finding, many countries with an official or favored religion and laws or policies based on that religion also have significant overlap between violations of religious freedom and other essential rights and freedoms. In Egypt, for example, which recognizes Sunni Islam as its official religion and identifies Sharia as the primary source of legislation, and I use the word the very carefully here, it's not a primary source, it is the primary source of legislation. Um, their government authorities regularly use a combination of blasphemy, cybersecurity, and other laws to prosecute non-believers, Quranists, Shia Muslims, and others. These prosecutions violate religious freedom, but they also variously impact other freedoms under international law, such as the freedoms of expression, association, assembly, non-discrimination, and so on. Uh, Eritrea, to use another example of this, is a little bit of an outlier as it officially recognizes four specific religious groups, but it only recognizes those four specific religious groups, and in fact, it subsequently forbids any other religions from operating in the country. But, and here's the key for this question of overlapping rights, Eritrea also has no independent legislative body or judicial branch, it has no free press, and it doesn't even have a facade of any sort of national elections or representative government. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing those examples. It's uh, really interesting how these laws and sort of legal strategies can show up in very different ways in different countries and in kind of different mm -hmm. levels of uh, egregiousness or harm to people. I mean, so regarding these trends that you just identified, what do they look like across like multiple countries or regions? And what are some of the common elements that would be helpful for governments or civil society to know about when advocating on behalf of freedom of, of religion or belief? Yeah, well, to, to put it most succinctly, Jamie, it's it's vital that religious freedom advocates um, assess and address freedom of religion or belief issues in, in each individual context. Uh, in other words, they can and they, they should start with those foundational documents, such as constitutions, that literally declare to the world what a given country stands for and how it frames its national identity. And, and this, you know, this specificity, I think, is, is a more important place to start than any sort of um, you know, broader trends that, that, that go in, in different regions or different parts of, of the world. But they also need to look carefully, and when I say they, I mean you know, advocates um, for religious freedom, um, they need to look carefully at the ways that those countries form their laws and policies accordingly. 
In other words, do they translate that religious identity as expressed in the Constitution into laws that discriminate and marginalize those who stand outside that religion or belief? Or do they complement that identity with robust protections of religious freedom and other essential rights? In other words, it's really through the application and enforcement of laws that a country either denies or protects religious freedom. And if I may, I'd like to add here, Jamie, that you know, we've always conceived of this particular report as a first step rather than a final word on the subject of official and favored religions and government laws and policies based on religion. For example, we, we've really only looked at the presence of laws based on religion and the potential that they may lead to discrimination and marginalization. But it's important that we, we need to assess the extent to which that potential is realized through enforcement. And this report doesn't yet get into that question of enforcement. Also, how can we best understand and address countries that are officially secular, but in practice act as if they have an official or favored religion? We hope to address these other categories and questions in the months and years to come. And, and we really do plan, Jamie, to have some follow-up reports that dive into these cracks and crevices that this report sort of bring to the surface but don't yet uh, address. So we do definitely hope to, to work and, and fill in those gaps in the future. Kurt, thanks so much for sharing all of that. Sounds like you're going to have your hands full with uh, multiple new research projects coming down the pipeline, and we look forward to, to hearing uh, more of your findings in the future. Uh, we'll have to leave it right there for today. So thanks so much to USERF Supervisory Policy Analyst Kurt Worth-Muller for joining us today to discuss his recent report on the religious freedom implications of official and favored religions. You can find a full version of this report and many others on global religious freedom trends and, of course, individual countries and issues on our website at usurf.gov. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on USURF Spotlight.